Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I am William Rogerberg, a member of VAEA. Welcome to a special Wart birthday show pledge drive. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, and I'm Carol Weidel, a member of the American Civil Liberties Union. This week, we'll get details on the Kellogg's Agreement, learn about a call for the second ruling for a second ruling in the Amazon Union election in Bessemer, Alabama, check in with the Postal Service on mail volumes, discuss how union leadership changes may affect contract negotiations for the UAW and the Teamsters, find out what the recent Supreme Court decisions on maps means, share the latest COVID report, and much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. Hi, this is Ellen, and I hope you can call 256-2001 and pledge for the boost, the December birthday booster for uh, supporting the station. The station really... Uh, appreciates the support. Where else can you hear such wonderful programming about unions, about working people, and about issues for working people? And there's a new uh, pledge level. Huh. <laughs> Listen, people. <laughs> One, $10 a month, you can get a retro airline bag. It's green and it looks really cool. We so may not be able call to travel. Six without, oh, right. Yeah, but we got the airline bag. Yep. 608-256-2001. If you, if you pledge and get the airline bag and we can't travel, it gives you a chance to listen to WORT. That's right. So this is Frank, the other producer here, one of them. This is uh, We've been on the air now with Labor Radio since January, with this show at this time, since January 1998. When you think about it, we have provided more information about the labor movement than almost anybody else around town for years. And it's because of you that we've been able to do this and bring you stories about what normal, everyday people are doing in our area to better their lives. And so 256-2001 is the way to keep this on the air. We need to hear from you. This is our birthday boost. I think it's the 46th year for WORT. But every year it gets more expensive and more difficult. Please give us a ring, 256-2001, or you can donate online. And for those who are saying, gee, you know, it's sort of tough, think about adding another 5 or $10 to your monthly donation. That's not a lot, and it adds up over the year, and it is a tremendous way to ensure that there's a steady income for WORT. And back to the show. There's a tentative agreement in the months-long Kellogg strike. Greg Jabosky gets details from a president of one of the four striking locals. On Wednesday, the food industry giant Kellogg's reached a tentative agreement with its four striking union locals in the Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers, and Grain Millers International Union, the BCTGM, located in Battle Creek, Michigan, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Memphis, Tennessee, and Omaha, Nebraska, potentially bringing an end to a strike which has been going since October 5th. Labor Radio spoke yesterday to Dan Osborne, president of BCTGM Local 50G in Omaha. Negotiations finally revolved around two main points says Osborne. From where we started with negotiations with the company, 
we have made some gains. There was basically two major sticking points. One was the cost of living. It's a wage adjustment that occurs every quarter. What that does is that keeps our wages even with inflation. At the beginning of this, the company wanted to eliminate the cost of living language. That's one of the main reasons we went on strike, that we would fall behind inflation. And if we would have given that up, then uh, we would have fell behind fairly quickly. This agreement keeps the cost of living language, explains Osborne. This is a five-year contract. The first year, we get a 3% raise. Subsequently, the next four years, cost of living will kick in. There's a $3 cap, so it can't go above $3 no matter how much inflation goes up. But that's, that's still a win in our book. And then there was the second big sticking point. Here's Dan Osborne. Now we go back to the next major issue, which is the two-tier wage system. That I, I'm not so happy with personally. Uh, you know, the body's going to vote. The people will vote on Sunday. We'll see where they stand. But uh, we weren't able to eliminate the two-tier system to date with these negotiations. Osborne, who's been at Kellogg's for almost 20 years, describes the changes he has seen the two-tier system bring. Before this two-tier system, if you got hired on, you pretty much retired from there because that's the kind of job it was. When I got hired on in 04, there was six job openings and there was 600 people that applied. So I just kind of figured, shoot, you know, I'm good. I have to work a lot. I have to sacrifice a lot, but that's what I'm willing to do for my family. But now, under this two-tier system, you get people that are hired lower tier. There's a 40% turnover rate. The negotiating position the company started from was completely unacceptable, said Osborne. Initially, the company wanted to eliminate the 30% cap, which means 30% of our body was on the lower tier. They make $12 an hour less, they get less vacation, they get less vacation pay, and they have to pay way higher insurance premiums. Their initial proposal, which is one of the major reasons we went on strike, is they wanted to eliminate that cap. So effectively, what that would do is through attrition, everybody would be on the lower tier at some point. You know, that's pretty obvious to anybody who understands it. That's definitely worth going on strike over, right? Osborne explains what is in the tentative agreement regarding the two-tier system. And this is where it gets kind of hairy. Where we're at now from then is the two-tier system is still in place. What we wanted to see was a clear path for the lower tier to move into the upper tier. They want to base it off of our head count. For example, in Omaha, we have 504 people potentially that could work at Kellogg's as our union body. So every year at two weeks before the ratification date, which would be October 5th, they would take a count of how many employees are at Kellogg's, and then they would take 3% of that count, and they would then move 3% that are on the lower tier up to the upper tier. Osborne has worries that Kellogg's could manipulate hiring to manipulate the base headcount. He also worries that, even assuming current hiring levels, the path to the first tier may be slow. 3% of 460 is roughly 15 people per year that would move up. Now, if we have 130 people on the lower tier, and you're number 130, I haven't quite done the math yet. How long is that going to take you to move up if only 15 people are moving up per year? Right? It's going to take you a long time. But whatever the result of his union's vote... Osborne had this to say to the world. I wanted to sincerely thank all of the people that have supported us throughout this endeavor, whether it's over or not. 
that's really what's kept us going through this fight. The worst thing in this world is to feel like you're alone. The amount of support we've seen throughout the country, not even just the country, but internationally, it's uh, it's been overwhelming, it's humbling, and I just wanted to thank everybody who has donated to us or even just the people who drive by our picket lines and honk their horns. That was Dan Osborne, president of BCTGM Local 50G in Omaha, representing Kellogg's workers there. His local is meeting today to discuss the tentative agreement reached on Wednesday with Kellogg's. They will vote on the contract on Sunday, and ballot boxes from all Kellogg's BCTGM locals will be flown to Kensington, Maryland, where there will be an official count. If members vote against the agreement, they stay on strike. If they approve it, Osborne expects Monday, December 13th, will be the day work resumes at Kellogg's. Osborne reminds listeners that the strike is not officially settled and that the union is still calling for a consumer boycott of Kellogg's products until an agreement is signed. Kellogg's sells a lot besides cereal, Osborne notes. There are a number of lists of Kellogg's products online, including Kellogg's Wikipedia page. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. The NLRB has upheld their decision to call for a second union election at Amazon's Fulfillment Center in Bessemer, Alabama. Labor Radio's Sean Hagerup reports. The National Labor Relations Board has affirmed an earlier ruling that a second union election must be held at an Amazon Fulfillment Center in Bessemer, Alabama. According to the ruling, handed down by NLRB Region 10 Director Lisa Henderson on Monday, Amazon showed, quote, flagrant disregard, unquote, for a mail-in vote on union representation earlier this year by installing a mailbox on the campus of its Bessemer Fulfillment Center, making a, quote, free and fair election impossible. The retail, wholesale, and department store union, which organized the drive that culminated in the spring election, hailed the decision as a victory. Quote, Today's decision confirms what we were saying all along, said RWDSU President Stuart Applebaum. Quote, that Amazon's intimidation and interference prevented workers from having a fair say in whether they wanted a union in their workplace. Announced in April, the first election result delivered an overwhelming defeat for pro-union employees, with workers voting almost 2,000 to 700 against unionization. But that result was contested by RWDSU officials who argued Amazon interfered in the election by, among other things, installing its own mailbox to collect ballots. Amazon security guards had access to the mailbox, giving some workers the impression that Amazon controlled the results. The NLRB concurred with these allegations, concluding that Amazon, quote, essentially hijacked the process and gave a strong impression that they controlled the election. Henderson went further in a ruling to say, quote, This dangerous and improper message to employees destroys trust in the board's process and in the credibility of the election results. In the months since the first election, a number of other unions have expressed interest in organizing Amazon workers. And a second election at the site might attract significantly more interest from other labor groups. On June 24th, the Teamsters announced a nationwide campaign to organize Amazon's sprawling workforce. The Teamsters have committed to spending, quote, all resources necessary to make the campaign successful. Amazon has a final opportunity to appeal the board's regional decision. If they do not choose to do so, a date for the new election will be set in a future filing by the board. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. All right. Well, just one thing. No, we have one party. We have somebody to thank, but let's play ball, and there isn't going to be any because of the lockout. 
And because all this happened in this this end of the Major week, League Baseball. Major League Baseball. I'm sorry. Yes, you know, America's <laughs> pastime. What? But because Ameri- the players were locked out by management in their negotiations in the baseball negotiations. This is a thing. I would people, care more if it weren't baseball. Yeah, people people watch this. America's pastime. America's lockout. Terrible stuff. But we'll have this story for you in detail next week on Labor Radio. Providing, of course, everybody calls 256-2001 and pledges to keep WRT and Labor Radio on the air. Yes, and we do have a couple of, we have someone to thank. I want to thank Norm Stockwell. Norm Stockwell worked for the station for a a while, and he worked on our show for a while. So thank you, Norm, for everything that you do in the community. And again, we hope people will call 608-256-2001 and help contribute. We also want to thank our phone answers. We want to keep them very busy. Sean and Diana are our phone answers, and so please call 608-256-2001. Or go to WRTFM.org and donate online. Hit the donate button and it's easy to do. So go to WRTFM.org or 608-256-2001. Reporter Janine Ramsey talks to Jacob Malinowski from the Fair Elections Project about Wednesday's Wisconsin Supreme Court decision on election maps. Jacob Malinowski, the communications director at the Fair Elections Project, updates us on the status of the Wisconsin legislative maps for the coming decade. Yesterday at the state Supreme Court, there was a 4-3 decision for the framework on how to view the mapmaking process going forwards. Over the past few months, the legislature has drawn and passed their own version of the district maps for the next 10 years. That map was vetoed by Governor Evers, and so this process is now going on in two different court systems. Yesterday, the state Supreme Court started their proceedings, and they decided that they would use a least changes framework to analyze and create a map moving forward. This least changes framework has no basis in the state constitution or any precedent or law, uh, and in fact ignores much of the political and judicial reality over the last 10 years, but that's where we're at in the process right now. What's gonna happen next? It will take a few weeks, maybe even months for the state Supreme Court to develop its own map, but a lot of this will still hang in federal courts. There's completely different lawsuit that's already been filed and has multiple plaintiffs to the case. And federal courts have traditionally dealt with redistricting. And in fact, here in Wisconsin, always have dealt with redistricting in the past. And this federal court will also handle a lot of the Voting Rights Act claims, uh, as that's more of a federal issue. That trial date, uh, if there is one, which there never has been in the past, is set for the end of January. And the federal court said that their map's might not be out until the beginning of March. From there, we're still not done. Back in 2011, this process continued on for months and months and even years. And the map they used in the 2012 election is not the map we even have nowadays. That was challenged in a 2015 lawsuit and changed from there. Can you just say what people can do? The number one thing folks should do is stay engaged on this issue, making sure your neighbors and friends and coworkers and people you live near understand why this is so important. The maps decide every issue in this state for the next decade. And whether that's writing letters to the editor to inform that in your paper, this court in particular has been known to respond to public opinion. And I think if Wisconsinites are really clear 
but they demand fair maps and they demand democracies restored in this state, we might see some real credible movement in the judicial system. That was Jacob Malinowski from the Fair Elections Project. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. Members of the United Auto Workers voted over the past month whether or not to institute a system of direct elections for the union's top officials. Reporter Sean Hagerup discusses the results of the referendum. The members of the United Auto Workers have voted resoundingly in favor of moving towards a system of direct elections to choose their leadership. The referendum is the product of a consent decree between the UAW and the U.S. Department of Justice. After a years-long series of prosecutions of top union officials on corruption charges ranging from embezzling union funds for personal use to accepting bribes from an employer, FCA, which was formerly Chrysler, in exchange for accepting contract terms more favorable to the company, ballots were sent out to 400,000 current and 600,000 retired members. Of the approximately 143,000 that returned their ballots, 63.7% had voted in favor of the resolution. Of the locals counted, ones representing larger membership tended to break towards supporting direct elections, while smaller locals tended towards supporting the existing delegate system, whereby each local sends one representative to the union's convention to confer their vote. For example, of the two largest UAW locals counted during the election, Local 862 representing just under 20,000 current and retired employees at Ford Plants in Kentucky, and Local 600 representing 25,000 current and retired Ford employees in Dearborn, Michigan, voted 81 and 69% in favor of direct elections, respectively. In contrast, Local 72 in Kenosha, with 515 members returning ballots, voted 63% in favor of keeping the delegate system. Other large bases of support for direct elections came from higher education locals, which make up a fifth of the union's active membership. University of California Graduate Workers Local 2865 voted 84% yes for direct elections, a percentage beaten only by Local 5118, the Harvard Graduate Students Union, which voted a whopping 97% yes. Some members are worried about the vagueness of the language of the consent decree, which does not clarify explicit next steps for implementation of the one man, one vote principle beyond collaboration between the union and the court monitor on amending the language of the UAW constitution. Most members expect some kind of delegate based nominations threshold as exists in the Teamsters where candidates have to win the support of at least 5% of convention delegates to get on the ballot. Other possible models are the ILWU where a primary election at the convention determines who makes it onto the general ballot or the steelworkers, where candidates must receive endorsements from a certain number of local unions to reach the ballot, or a membership-wide petition-based nominations process, which in the Teamsters is a prerequisite for nomination at the convention. Election rules could also allow electronic balloting and limit campaign spending. One way or another, members expect a showdown at the convention in June 2022, whether over the nomination itself or the particularities of how the election is to be conducted plus any other constitutional changes members would like to pursue. The convention delegate races, which are most likely to be held this spring, are expected to be hotly contested. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. Hi, we're back. We'd like you to call 608-256-2001 and... 
I really wanted to thank all of the folks that contribute to the station and in specific Labor Radio. We've had so many volunteers come through and help us on this show, and it really reflects what WRT and Labor Radio is all about. It's about community. It's about people putting their time and effort in to provide information to people in the community about working people, about what's going on with things like elections and strikes and so on. So if you like listening to this kind of news, call us at 608-256-2001. We could really use your help because uh, WRT really depends on this birthday boost to help put them in the black for the end of the year. So if you can call 608-256-2001, we'd really appreciate it. We or, did get a pledge oh, we online. Oh, we'd we like did. to thank Harry for a generous pledge. Thank uh, you, Harry. Harry likes a public affair on Thursdays, likes WRT's local news on Mondays, and likes labor radio. So That's wonderful. Thank you, Harry. For your, says, keep up the important labor news and analysis that is missing in the mainstream media. You can join Harry by calling 256-2001. And pledging, that is still the number, isn't it? You can it? join them at WRTFM.org, too. Hit well, the donate button. You know, we talk about what's in the media. The fact is we cover two stories today about the UAW and the Teamsters. What happens in those organized sectors of the working class is that when they win something, everybody wins something, including people here in Madison, Wisconsin. And no place else in the mainstream media did you get the detail, the background, why this was important. But you got it here at WORT 256-2001. We need to continue to do this. We want to expand. We want to reach more people. We want to reach you. So please give us a hand here, 256-2001. That's right. Let's get the two more stories. Yes. We have two more stories. stories. A couple of more pledges, too, would be helpful. Holiday mail volumes are increasing with mailing deadlines fast approaching. Mailing deadlines for expected delivery before December 25th are Wednesday, December 15th for ground service, Friday, December 17th for first class mail, Saturday, December 18th for priority mail, and Thursday, December 23rd for express mail. Keith Steffen has news about expected changes at the top levels of postal management and some postal employees that are working without a contract. President Biden has nominated two Postal Board of Governors candidates to replace allies of Postmaster General Louis DeJoy. Daniel Tangerlini was the administrator of the U.S. General Services Administration during the Obama presidency and will serve as a Democrat if confirmed by the Senate. Derek Kahn was the deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget for the last six months of the Trump administration and will serve as a Republican if confirmed. These fourth and fifth nominations by Biden will mean he has appointed more than half of the nine members. If the Postal Board of Governors acts as expected to remove DeJoy, his replacement will likely take several months. In postal labor news, the National Rural Letter Carriers Association, NRLCA, has been working without a contract for more than six months. The NRLCA represents about 119,000 employees. Their wages are based on annual route evaluations that are supposed to adjust the routes to approximately eight hours on average. Due to the lack of a contract, the rural routes have not been evaluated. Because of increases in parcel volumes, many of them are working considerably longer than their daily eight-hour compensation. Although negotiations are continuing, no resolution is expected in the near future. I'm Keith Steffen, reporting for Labor Radio. A recent election for the top office in the Teamsters Union may have implications for the upcoming contract negotiations with UPS. Reporter Sean Hagerup has more on the election. 
A new administration will soon take the helm of the 1.3 million member Teamsters Union. The Teamsters United slate swept to victory in the union's most recent election last month, beating out their rivals by a margin of two to one. It's the first time in almost a quarter century that a coalition backed by the Teamsters for a Democratic Union has taken the driver's seat in the international. The union has been led for the last 23 years by James Hoffa, son of legendary labor leader Jimmy Hoffa, who held the top job at the union less than half as long as his son. This is the first election at the union in 30 years without Hoffa's name on the ballot. Hoffa, who is 80 years old, is retiring, choosing not to run for another term. The election results could have a big impact on UPS, who is by far the union's largest employer. The company just reported record annual profits in the first nine months of this year, with its busiest season yet to come. And the UPS Teamsters are eager for a much better contract in the upcoming 2023 negotiations. The incoming president is Sean O'Brien, leader of New England Joint Council 10. He says his top priorities are to unite the rank and file to take on employers, organize Amazon and other competitors in the union's core industries, and withdraw support from politicians who don't deliver on union demands. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. Today's weekly COVID report includes news about the Omicron variant and hospitals reaching capacity in Wisconsin. Omicron is a new variant of the COVID-19 virus. On November 26, the World Health Organization designated this variant as a variant of concern. Due to quick action from scientists, the world was alerted quickly about the Omicron variant. However, this also means that there is not a lot known about Omicron. More information comes from the World Health Organization and from other recent cases in other countries. The news about Omicron is concerning, but there is no information that is cause for panic. In Wisconsin, the number of deaths due to COVID passed the 9,000 mark, standing today at 9,093 people. Hospitals in Wisconsin are reaching capacity, and the trend is upward. 92% of hospital beds statewide are in use. More than 95% of intensive care units are filled. Green Bay hospitals are turning patients away. Those turned away include stroke victims. In the two-week period ending Sunday, November 28th, the number of people hospitalized with COVID in Dane County hospitals increased, with an average of 109 people hospitalized with COVID in Dane County hospitals each day. It is not known whether these hospitalizations are from Dane County residents or from patients transferred to the Dane County hospitals from surrounding areas. 40% of Dane County residents age 18 and over who have completed the initial vaccine series have received a booster or third dose. 39 COVID clusters are associated with schools in Dane County. The 349 cases associated with these clusters include 319 children and 34 adults. Public Health is booking appointments for 5 to 11-year-olds only at the Arena Clinic open Tuesday through Saturday. All ages are welcome at public health clinics in South Madison and on East Washington Avenue. Finally, vaccine locations for everyone can be found by zip code. The website vaccines.gov is one place to start the search. Sources for this story include the Centers for Disease Control, the Wisconsin Department of Health Services, Public Health Madison and Dane County, and the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. And again, yes, pledge drive again, folks. You got to do something. Two five six two thousand and one. They only have a minute to do it. Six zero eight two five six two thousand one. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Yes, we um, need to hear from you. We, we do only, need to hear from you. Six zero eight two five six. We need a couple oh, of more. Somebody might be coming. Six zero eight two five six two thousand one. And I wanted to thank every um, Carol 
and Will for reading tonight. And I'd also like to thank you for listening to the show. I am again, Ellen Lalazern, and thanks to Frank, my colleague sitting next to me, and our wonderful script assistant, Robin G., who every week sends us a wonderful script. We want to thank reporters Greg Jabosky, Sean Hagrup, Anna Ham, Scott McCullough, Janine Ramsey, Tony Reeves, and damage control specialist, who is our engineer, Joanne Powers. And we have someone we to have thank. We have a pledge. We have, we have a, a pledge. pledge. Yay. Bing. Hey, oh, thank you. Thank you, Margaret. Wow. Or Martha. I'm sorry. I can't read. Martha, thank you so much for your generous donation. And again, we are like to thank... All of our listeners, we also, I need to thank Keith Stefan, our reader coordinator, 